Dreams are real, but they are made of viewpoints, of images, of memories and puns and lost hopes. Hello dreamers, I have been notably absent from Shadow Truths. A writer's got to write and sometimes she has to write certain things before she writes other things. In this particular case, I've been writing courses, several ones, and also one and a half books. So I was very busy. And I have also reassessed my use of social media in general and the way I provide content. If you want to know a bit more about that, I wrote about it on my Substack, um, the bit that's more related to the creative cure. I'll put the links about that in the show notes for you, or you could also listen to my other podcast, which I can also put in the show notes for you. So generally speaking, that's why you haven't heard from me for a while, but I'm back. And you might find that the structure of Shadow Truths becomes a bit more free-flowing from now on, because I was beginning to find that the initial formats I had chosen was a bit restrictive. And it's okay to say that you sort of thought something was a good idea, but then you noticed it actually wasn't. So I also intend to break up the publishing schedule a tiny bit because I simply have to admit that creating two newsletters and two podcasts on a weekly schedule, as I had initially planned, was a tiny bit too ambitious because it takes up a lot of time that I don't always have because I do all of this myself in my free time, basically. And the intervals between publications might stretch out a bit from now on. That's my saying. It will probably become a bit less predictable from now onwards. So you won't get it on this regimented 14-day schedule or fortnightly schedule that I had initially planned. But other than that, let's get right to it. Um, as I said, I'll break the structure up slightly differently from now on. It will be less strictly separated between summarizing and already going into interpretation from now onwards. Today, we'll talk about issue five of The Sandman, Passengers. So as it said in the title, it's the fifth issue of the first volume, Preludes and Nocturnes, and it follows Dream's quest to recover his lost objects of power. We've already talked about his sand and his helm in previous issues. Feel free to go back to those for a catch-up. Um, you can either listen to previous episodes or you can read it on my Substack if you want. So the only thing that's missing at this point is his ruby. And that ruby had been taken from him by Roderick Burgess, whose mistress Ethel Cripps, or in the comics, it was actually his associate Rothwin Sykes, who was in a secret relationship with Ethel, then stole it from Burgess later on. So the ruby is a wall, basically. And it ultimately ended up in the hands of Ethel's son, John Dee, who used it to turn dreams and nightmares into reality. Maybe briefly about the ruby in general, it's considered the most powerful of the 12 dream stones, and it helps dream to administer his realm. 
Um, in a previous episode, I already likened it to some sort of supercomputer, and I'm still not really sorry about that comparison, especially not since Neil Gaiman apparently isn't sorry about that either. Um, if you want to know more about that, you could, for instance, read The Sandman Companion by Highbender. I'll maybe put a link for that into the show notes for you as well. So the ruby wields the power of dreams, but it can also shape reality as the opposite side of that coin. In short, it hasn't been made for mortals and it puts them and the world in grave danger if they use it. In the comics, we are more or less in the DC universe at this point, but all of these references have been removed for the TV show. And I personally have to admit I'm glad about that because I always found the DC references yeah, a bit shoehorned in. I'm not blaming Gaiman here. It had to be done at the time, obviously. But for me, they always made the development of the plot a tiny bit awkward. And they more felt like something that was tacked on um, instead of something that really advanced the plot in any way. But thankfully, they also stop at some point in the comics, and presumably that is when the Sandman had found its readership and was really fully established in its own right. At the beginning of Passengers, John Dee, who is a former supervillain known as Dr. Destiny in the DC Universe, escapes from Arkham Asylum, and he tells the Scarecrow, so we're really talking Arkham Asylum and the Scarecrow from Batman here, um, he tells him about his plan to find the ruby, which he calls also the Matrioptican. And in the past, he had altered and used that ruby to change reality, but it cost him dearly. He ended up in an asylum, so it cost him his sanity. And after his arrest, the Justice League stored the ruby in a facility or... You could call it a trophy room in Mayhew. And this is where John is headed after his escape from Arkham. Now, Dream obviously looks for the same ruby and he needs to find it. So in a first step, he recruits Scott Free, who is also a DC superhero known as Mr. Miracle, to help him on that quest. Um, I don't want to go too deeply into the background story of Scott Free here. If you're interested, you'll find plenty of info on the net. Only so much at this point. As an infant, Scott was exchanged to secure a truce between New Genesis and Apocalypse. Um, so it's it's very, very complicated. Um but without going into too much detail, it's probably sufficient to say that Scott had a really terrible and traumatic upbringing and he eventually escaped to Earth and then joined the Justice League. Um, and that's where John Dee comes in because obviously the Justice League locked him and the Ruby away. So Scott doesn't really know where the Ruby is, but he has an idea one of, of his other Justice League colleagues might, might know. That's John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. And John sees Morpheus as Lord Lazorial, which is the Martian equivalent of the Lord of Dreams. And this is basically where we get the first hints that Dream is of universal significance. So it, he's not just the Dream Lord to humans. And Neil Gaiman has stated in the annotated Sandman that Dream doesn't really have a name. So that any name for a dream god 
will attach itself to him. And that even dream isn't his name, it's his function. And that's really tragic to think about, especially as we move on in the story. I won't give too much away at this point, um, but not having a name and just being your function is tragic, obviously. Just so much at this point, none of the endless siblings we'll still meet are entirely unscathed by their existence. They're all buckling under its weight to a degree. But it's only Dream who has a thing for collecting names, and that's already foreboding for things to come. His deep wish to actually be something else than just his function. In any case, after that quick discourse, John tells Morpheus that the ruby is stored in Mayhew, and Dream then arrives there and tries to retrieve the ruby. It's quite entertaining in the comics because he travels through people's dreams to get there. Um, and you also meet other characters that will be of significance at a later stage while he does that. But when he arrives in Mayhew to um, yeah, retrieve the ruby, he discovers that Dr. Destiny has altered it. And when he tries to use it, it knocks him unconscious. Before that happens, if you look at the comic panels, that's actually one of the few times I think I can only recall three or four where we see comic stream with human eyes and not with black voids filled with starlight. And I do think that's important because every time we see dream with human eyes, he's either taken aback in some way, he's not in control or he has a human moment. So maybe if you're rereading, or if you're starting to read The Sandman for the first time, watch out for it. They're really, really rare moments, but if you spot them, they will tell you a lot, actually. And this is one of them. So shortly thereafter, John arrives and finds that the ruby has become even more powerful because it absorbed more of Dream's power as he tried to use it. And John then finds a diner, he walks off with his ruby, and he waits for the end of the world. That's something we'll look into in the next episode. Now, this has all been super simplified in the TV show. Um, in the TV show, we're basically leading into this in the fourth episode, A Hope in Hell. And Dream simply tracks down the ruby via his regained helmet. Now, if you want to re uh, refresh your memory, you can also do that by listening to A Hope in Hell again. That's the previous episode. Or you can read it on my Substack. Now, let's have a little look at the deeper themes of this issue. I would like to go into why we're actually calling number five passengers, but we can't really get into that without already connecting to the deeper themes. Because what I have left out in my summary so far is that in both the comics and the TV show, John basically stops a car driven by a woman called Rosemary. And in the comics, he basically takes her hostage at gunpoint. In the TV show, on the other hand, um, Rosemary basically takes pity on him. He seems completely lost and disoriented and she simply offers him a lift. Now, comics Rosemary 
is initially understandably scared and tells John in her fear that her husband is a mafia hitman and he will hunt him down if he doesn't let her go. But during their drive together, they actually begin to talk. They have a real conversation and Rosemary feels quite sorry for John, not least because he seems really in a terrible physical state. Um, now, when the comics first came out, we were at the height of the AIDS crisis and she actually asks him if he has AIDS. So Rosemary is a nurse and um, she really just picks up on how really sick and ill he looks. Um, she even provides him with her husband's bare coat she has in the car. She offers him her lunch sandwiches. So she really takes pity on him despite him threatening her and she's not prompted into that in any way and by the time we get to John's destination they basically really had something like a meaningful conversation and John had even put his gun down and initially it really looks like he might let her go but then he asks her one final question is it really true that your husband is a mafia hitman and Rosemary tells him that she was simply scared and that her husband is actually just a teacher. And John comments, yeah, it wouldn't have made a difference anyway. And he basically shoots her point blank. And that was really quite a shocker because if you had read it up until there, you would have thought they have something. They are like a human connection all of a sudden. And then it just gets turned on its head within like one panel. And that's a really pretty bleak ending for obvious reasons, um, because no matter if you lie or tell the truth, no matter if you start to gain someone's trust or not, no matter if you want to help, you will be punished for it anyway. And in the end, nothing will have mattered. No matter what you do, it doesn't make a difference. And some people might actually connect with that take because it is so bleak and because it feels real as we look at today's world, right? But Rosemary's story has been changed for the TV show where John indeed lets her go and even gives her the amulet of protection that his mother had given him. Basically, he's of the belief that he now has his ruby, which is far more powerful anyway. And he tells Rosemary she will never need to be afraid or lie again. So that's really quite a different ending in that way. What both versions have in common is that Rosemary as a person believes in the good in people. She wants to help despite being under duress because even in the TV show, she finds out little by little that John is basically a dangerous psychopath and um, she sees how people come to harm or die because of his amulet of protection. It's also because of the stuff he tells her that he basically killed people, that that's why he ended up in Arkham, or in, it wasn't Arkham Asylum in the TV show, but that's why he ended up in a mental hospital, basically. And I really like that take, because unlike in the comics, which had a far darker message, her belief for once is rewarded. John lets her go. Even more poignantly, despite being scared and having a chance to drive off when he looks for his ruby, she still waits for him and offers him another lift, which obviously isn't rational and many of us maybe wouldn't do that. 
But traumatized people don't always act rationally. And that's also something that's um, important to keep in mind. And then John asks her if that's what she really wants. Do you really want to give me a lift at this point? After all you've been through, essentially. It doesn't say that um, that explicitly. But it is what it insinuates. And she simply answers truthfully that all she wants is to go home. And that's when John tells her that she will never need to lie anymore because the amulet will protect her from now on. And while some people might think that the comics version seems more realistic, I'd like to stress that hope is an overarching theme in The Sandman. And to pull out a G.K. Chesterton quote, and we will get more of Chesterton at some point. He basically wrote, exactly at the instant when hope ceases to be reasonable, it begins to be useful. Perhaps it's important for us to remember the lights when things seem darkest, and I like that they made that decision for the show. Now, that's obviously just a personal um, viewpoint, so feel free to disagree with that. But generally speaking, there's also a far more human element to John Dee in the TV series, even if we keep in mind what's yet to come in the next issues. And we get a much stronger sense that he's as much a victim of his own circumstances and traumatic past as he is a perpetrator of crimes. And that's not making excuses at any point, because at no point do we get an excuse for the things he does. But there's a very poignant scene during the car ride when Rosemary and John talk about why people lie. And it's basically completely new to him. He doesn't understand that some people lie because they're scared, not because they're selfish, how he perceives it, and not because they have no interest in the truth. That's how he sees it. And Rosemary makes him see that, although we later turn that on its head again as well, because um, when Rosemary lies to him at some point because she is scared, he doesn't really react that well. Although one could say, well, he lets her go. Um, so he still reacts completely differently from what he did in the comics so that's still happening and then he gives her the amulet of protection and basically tells her she never has to lie again so that people don't lie is actually really important to him because of his own background story because he feels like he's always been lied to now we will see that John is still out to follow his goal to forcefully strip the world from those lies and to him dreams are lies, even he, if he has these small moments of compassion. And compassion is really a recurring theme of issue five or of the Sandman in general. We also see Morpheus, who seems cold, detached and aloof a lot of the time, show compassion whether he does it because he empathizes um, from me, that's a hard no at this point, um, or because it is the right thing to do, that's how I would see it. Because at this point, and also further on in the storyline, he really is a stickler for rules and what's right or wrong. Now, whether you think it's one or the other, 
is obviously a question open to interpretation, but undoubtedly we see Dream in several situations where he just shows compassion. Rachel and John Constantine and Dream Little Dream of Me would spring to mind again. So if you want to um, yeah, refresh your memory on that, you can listen to episode three again or read it on my Substack. And in issue number five, we basically see him show compassion as well. He takes away Scott's childhood nightmares. John Jones is granted a dream of the city of Focative Mirrors, um, <laughs> which is quite hilarious to be frank, because this is a pun on Shakespeare, and it basically means he grants him a sex dream. You can put that into Google um, if you maybe want to have a little laugh, and I really quite like that Neil Gaiman brought that in at this stage. But um, to get back on subject, um, Morpheus wasn't prompted to do these things. He just did it because he felt it was the right thing to do. And this is basically where we go into our reflections on this issue. Because since it hinges so heavily on the distinction between dreams and reality, and what happens when the lines between the two become too blurred... I'd like you to just reflect on the following questions. How do your dreams influence your perception of reality? Do you ever think about using your creative discipline, whether that's writing or visual art or music, to bridge the gap between the two? And if you do, are you doing it for yourself or to inspire others? So what are your reasons? Is there a line for you? Is it quite the same? Is it hard? Is it easy? So where do you stand on yeah, how dreams are influencing your perception of reality or how reality influences your dreams? Could be the other way around as well. So basically, how do your artistic pursuits shape your understanding of the world and maybe also of yourself? And another question that's quite interesting in this context would be how easy or hard it is for you to balance your creative aspirations with practical realities. What helps you to maintain mental well-being during your artistic process? And are these actually questions you ever ask yourself? So do you currently have any self-care practices in place that go into that direction? And another topic I'd like you to reflect upon is compassion. And I don't just have a simple question for you in that case. I'd rather encourage you to share your personal experiences of the previous questions I just asked you there in our subscriber chats. I'll put the details of that for you into the comments. So you basically just join our subscriber chat on Substack. And um, I'm doing this because empathy and compassion are fostered by social connection and sharing. And as artists, especially if we work in an art that is more solitary, like writing, for instance, or visual arts, um, it can feel quite lonely at times. And remembering to connect with other people about your self-care, but also about your arts, about all sorts of stuff, really, is really, really important. So what you share doesn't have to be much, and obviously only what and if you're comfortable sharing anyway, but maybe join us there and let us know what you think.
And if you like, you can also talk about how you cultivate self-compassion during challenging times. Or maybe the small acts of kindness that have made a significant difference to your mental well-being journey. You can do that with a focus on both yourself or what you like to do for others. And while I'd obviously like to encourage you to share, I also really understand if you'd rather not. So if that's the case, share it with someone close to you. But sharing it and talking about it to someone, whoever that might be, a person you trust, is really important. And that's all for today. I hope you'll join me next time when we'll have a look at issue 6, 24 hours. And until then, keep dreaming.